Today I'd like to share with you a teaching on the ten paramis, or the ten boundless beautiful qualities of heart. Uh, It's another list. I'm not sure if it made it onto Sally's list of lists. I saw someone looking at it earlier. But um, this particular teaching uh, is about the human heart and how beautiful and noble it can become. And the, the beautiful thing is the river of the Dharma flows in one direction towards freedom. But uh, freedom, as the heart gets freer, these beautiful qualities begin to visit more and more often. And they visit so often that it begins to feel like it's the, the new baseline of your heart and troubles uh, come and visit and challenge you. But more and more, your own heart uh, becomes a beautiful place to be. And I'm quite shocked at how beautiful my own heart has become. Uh, I know what it was like 30 years ago. And it had beautiful qualities that were like shooting stars. Um, But I just could not establish them. And there were many uh, aspects of my mind that were quite uh, vicious to itself at times to others. So uh, when Sally talked about the Four Noble Truths, the third noble truth is the suffering, the second arrow, the agitation that we often experience. Um, We get shot less often by that second arrow. Our suffering reduces. But what wasn't talked about so much, um, and I found this list later on, like for some reason I found the good stuff really later on in practice. Um, it was the very first Noble Truth-ish uh, when we began. And then we were also going through a cycle where the, the Western insight was really being courageous in meeting its dukkha. And um, there was just a cycle where it just got very intense. And um, that's where I started 30 years ago. Um, actually, it was in March of 1989. And uh, the coming of March, I think, my mind is sure that it was March 9th. And I'm pretty sure I don't remember that. <laughs> but like, I can see it on a calendar right now. So I'm like, wow, you're really convinced it was March 9th. <laughs> it's like, I can see the calendar. It's like, you, I'm sure that's not the real calendar. But uh, March 9th will be the 30th uh, year since I took a Dharma dive from really no experience with Buddhism. Uh, I just accidentally dove in the deep end. And people probably talked about the beautiful qualities of the heart back then. And I don't think I quite knew what they were talking about because my own experience of my own heart was that it had beauties at times, but they were very happenstance. And I could go through weeks, if not months, where I felt very dominated by um, afflictions. And I would get breaths every now and then. But I remember some really dark months um, where... My inner experience was really conflicted and it would pass and I'd be grateful that it passed, but I didn't feel like I was out past it visiting again. And sure enough, other chapters in life would happen and I didn't know how to establish it. So I'm sure that people were talking about these beautiful qualities even back then. That's just, I usually spaced out when they were because I I didn't... um, didn't have a, a personal experience of 
this boundless, beautiful heart. Um, but lo and behold, it actually has grown uh, out of my own heart um, with the practice. So I'd like to talk about that both as an outcome of practice, and then when we know these beautiful qualities, we can appreciate them. And by appreciate them, we actually uh, encourage them to grow. It's part of the Eightfold Path is right effort. And when you begin to really appreciate a quality of heart or mind, you, you don't uh, ignore its arising. You begin to say like, wow, I actually want to take note of my own loving kindness or my own patience or my own uh, noble courage to face life. Um, and usually we're drawn up into the content of what's happening, but if you can also notice my own heart has these beauties in it. Um, that's part of how we uh, encourage those qualities to grow. So I'm going to talk about paramis in general and about this specific group of ten paramis. Another um, subtitle would be about uh, cultivating sanctuary so that you can be of service. And service can be uh, taking your sanctuary out into the world where there are challenges and bring that sanctuary with you and restore yourself. And sometimes it's about inviting people into a sanctuary where you invite people in so if they're lost or confused or tired, then they get to encounter another person and be well held and held in warmth and kindness and patience. So that's a subtitle. And I have a third subtitle, and I hope this doesn't become a mind worm for you, but somehow I wanted to call this talk, uh, I got 99 problems, but the breath ain't one. <laughs> that might have been more about the subtitle of the absorption talk. Um, <laughs> 99 problems, but the breath ain't one. I hope that doesn't become a mind worm, but if it does, it's not a bad mind worm. So to take in this talk, <clears throat> um, there are two frames you can look at it. One is a very big view, maybe the most expansive view in our tradition, the multiple life model. Um, and some of it actually is right as we go through moment by moment experience. And you might, if you know these qualities, you might see them while they're happening and they might visit you uh, moment by moment. So it can be a moment by moment practice where you welcome these, these qualities forward, and when they arise, you appreciate them. Um, but there's also a view, maybe the longest, widest view, that if you believe in uh, either the multiple chapters of one life, which could be the many lives, like the person I was 30 years ago, feels like my uh, younger brother, but uh, we've changed, I've changed so much that, um, there are many chapters in this one life, but in this tradition, there's actually a model of countless past lives and countless future lives. And what we're doing through the multiple lives is developing the strength of heart that can finally be free, um, that don't succumb to craving, that don't look for happiness in defensive resentment. Um, so in that larger view, um, we're cultivating strength of heart. And when I was uh, practicing with the uh, Burmese monks, they really didn't think it all had to happen in one life. 
that this one life is sort of like a, a weekend workshop where you're, you kind of notice what the themes are and you go and you're working on developing a particular quality. But uh, this one life is not the be end, uh, the be and end all of it. It's a very short little blip on a much larger scheme. Our, uh, our hero, the Buddha, um, this guy here, when he took his bodhisattva vow in countless lives in the past, um, what it took him uh, trillions of lives, trillions upon trillions of lives, countless lives, um, he was developing his paramis so that they were all um, strong enough that he could actually uh, attain Buddhahood, which is quite a high bar. And it's not actually a one-life wake-up, um, at least in the Theravadan uh, insight mythology, that it takes many lives to develop these qualities. Um, and so the story of his journey from when he takes his bodhisattva vow until he becomes the Buddha is the story of parami development. It's the story of strength of hearts, uh, strength, many strengths of heart that he had to develop um, and took many lives to develop them um, so that in one lifetime they could all ripen to, their, to a very high extreme and that would support uh, Buddha awakening. So his journey was a journey of strengthening qualities. Um, when you go to uh, the pagodas and temples in Burma, Thailand, and I assume Sri Lanka, um, you'll have many Buddha images, but sometimes around the whole base of the pagoda are many tiles, and each tile would be a story of the Buddha's previous life when he was a deer, or when he was up in the god realms, or a human, and there are at least 500 stories in the Pali Canon um, counting what he did in that life that uh, strengthened a particular parami, um, beautiful quality. And if it's not actually built into the pagoda, it's often in the paintings um, in the hallway leading up to the pagoda. Um, so this mythology that we're here for many lives, um, we're developing strengths of heart, it lends itself to a maybe a type of patience that you don't have to get it all done now. And it don't, doesn't all have to ripen now to be valid, that you actually can take some time in terms of many lives to really work on patience or courage or a loving kindness, that uh, you're not slow because it's not ripening now or five years into your practice, that five years is you're just beginning to discover what uh, loving kindness is like. Um, versus why isn't it clicking in right now? Why haven't I hit these high absorption states that I've heard about? So the time frame is quite large in terms of developing these strengths. And hopefully as we start talking about these strengths of heart, you don't use this to beat yourself up and measure yourself from perfection down, but you measure from the ground up uh, that you appreciate, like your ability to absorb your ability to have these beautiful qualities. There's a classical list of 10, um, and I'll describe why these particular 10 stand out. But really any standout quality that is benevolent or beneficial 
uh, can be considered a parami. So they'll often say that um, someone has a parami uh, in their ability to play music. Someone has a parami in their ability to memorize. So if you have a standout quality that brings benefit, um, the assumption is you didn't forge that in one life, that you've been working on that for countless lives. And that's why it's so strong and reliable, is that it, it wasn't a, um, a jiffy, quick thing that you, you popped up. But it has a lot of momentum to it, and that's why it's so strong in this life. So that's a more classical view on these strengths. But there's this list of 10. And this particular list of 10, uh, they stand out because they're near universal. You don't have to be in specific circumstances to develop these paramis. So you'll notice that uh, compassion isn't on this list, but it's considered a priceless parami to develop the parami of compassion. The strength of heart that stands out that's strong enough to be in conscious relationship to pain. Um, it's a beautiful parami, but it's, it's usually, um, it arises in a certain condition where it makes sense. Whereas the paramis we're gonna go over in this list, they're uh, nearly universal. Nearly every moment you're in, they can play a lead role or a support role. Um, whereas compassion and sympathetic joy, uh, they have their time but they wouldn't necessarily be um, a lead role or a support role in every single moment. So I'm going to use this word, uh, parmi. It's a Pali word. Um, and Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, uh, describes it this way. He's one of the Western translators. He says, the word parmi derives from Parama, which means supreme, and thus suggesting the eminence of a quality which must be fulfilled by the bodhisattva, and then they expanded it to be all of us working on our paramis. Um, so the supreme eminence of a quality in a bodhisattva, in long course of his spiritual development, the cognate of paramita, um, might be thought of two words, uh, param and ita, and param means to go beyond. So these qualities, um, when they are uh, become powerful, and you know, when our hearts become more and more free, these are the qualities that dance through a, a free heart. So a free heart doesn't become more and more neutral, more and more inert, more and more kind of in spacious awareness until finally you have no ability to respond to the world. That's a particular training towards uh, being able to see the world clearly. But then uh, you might be, have a life that's deeply embedded in service or deeply expressed through service, um, through action, through the world. Um, when it's the beautiful parami, when it's the beautiful quality, um, it seems to be unlimited or unscarred by the vicissitudes of samsara. So you might notice somebody, you might notice somebody you respect has a quality about them that doesn't seem to be taken down uh, by worldly events. So you might think of every Nobel Peace Prize winner and everybody who was nominated. Um, I won't make a political joke. <laughs> 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 but you might in tune where I might have gone with uh, those who 
might be nominated for Nobel Peace Prizes, they have a quality that seems to stand out about them. And many people are taken by the fact that they could be in contact with so much world suffering. And yet as they engage with the suffering, they seem to glow brighter. They seem not to be haggard and taken down and drawn into uh, more normal human reactivity, into despair um, or a diminishment or defensiveness. Somehow this beautiful, great quality shone, uh, and it shone brightly uh, in a time of great um, collective despair. So there might be grand versions of that, um, like Nobel Peace Prize winners. You know, I think of um, Nelson Mandela walking out of prison and him just having the inclination that if I walk out of prison resentful, I'm carrying the prison with me. And so I have to walk out free of the prison, which means I have to let go of all the accumulated frustrations of my torment. Um, otherwise, the door opened and I brought the prison with me. I'm just kind of paraphrasing. And then as he stepped back into South Africa, many people were taken by him. A person who had gone through extreme uh, suffering, but it ennobled him. And you can kind of, again, that seems to be a quality uh, people who win the Nobel Peace Prize. But then there are ordinary examples like that. And you probably know people who are very humble in your community, yet there's, some, there's a glow about them. There's something you deeply admire about them. You've seen them take on stress or be of service in their community, a standout quality um, that we all have. We all have potential and it visits us. Um, but for some people it's a steadier quality and you grow to love and respect them through that quality. So that standout quality um, we call a parami. It seems to go beyond the uh, normal vicissitudes. It seems not to be degraded easily. And it seems to be part of someone's character strength that they're patient or that they're very energetic or that they're very committed to service and they love service or um, uh, many qualities. And here's a list of um, 10 of them. Well, I share this list now because um, we're at an inflection point where uh, some of you are on one month retreat and you're going into back to worldly life. And there's a stress where you think, how can I keep this going in those circumstances? And that's, uh, that ends up being wrong view. You're, you're, you're trying to appreciate the Dharma, but the Dharma means waking up uh, in whatever circumstances you are. And so you should actually scramble the circumstances and see where am I free, where am I caught? And I can do it in this setting. And this is a very protective setting to explore that. But unconditional freedom is freedom in all conditions. So if there's a whole set of conditions you don't know how to be free in, then you don't have unconditional freedom. There's a pocket. So you might as well visit those places and learn, how do I wake up? How do I wake up in my place of employment? How do I wake up back at home? How do I wake up when I'm driving? How do I wake up when I'm shopping for food? How do I wake up when uh, there's a deep family stress about the pain of somebody or the passing of somebody? Um, how do I wake up 
when the world seems to be on fire? And how do I stay awake when the world seems kind of calm and I feel kind of adrift? Countless circumstances that you can try to feel into and intuit. Um, how do I stay present here and not cling to my preferences? So eventually we do have to integrate our practice. So some of you are on the cusp of doing that. Some of you are gonna spend another month in the channel of deepening certain strengths that are um, cultivated on retreat. And then you're gonna integrate that back into a greater, um, a greater set of circumstances. And that's what a full spiritual path is like. It's not about um, getting more and more fragile. So there are fewer and fewer places that you could tolerate being because you're feeling so much. And then having this sort of uh, shrinking from the world because I can't stand to feel it, I feel too much. That's okay as a cycle of practice to really open up and really feel the world and feel the vicissitudes that are out there and take some time for cultivating uh, inner well-being. But you can get, um, I I met a few monastics that had actually um, gotten fragile um, and they, they, they really clung to the monastery. And as a cycle, that's not bad, but as a long-term trajectory, it means that um, where you can be free and well is actually getting smaller and smaller. We want where we're free and well to be expansive. And we have to be able to do that in broad circumstances. So <clears throat> I just wanted to visit uh, slightly some things that happened 30 years ago. I'll just touch on them briefly because it was an interesting, some things awoke 30 years ago for me. Um, and what awoke first was I went to the Nevada nuclear test site in 1988. And I was in college at the time and I heard that there was this grand protest of nuclear testing. And it was something I cared about. Um, you know, if you're about my age or older, you know what it's like to have lived under the sense any moment now there could be mushroom clouds. And that's kind of vanished, but now we have climate change. So there's always something challenging we have to contend with. But when I was growing up, it was the imminent nuclear war. And so I thought I would go and participate um, in trying to protest the cultivation of these, uh, these bombs. And it was there that I met um, my first peace activists with paramis. Like I'd met radical people who were kind of pissy and intense about their views, but I hadn't met like transcendent peace activists. And so I got to live in the desert um, with 5,000 people and we were getting arrested and uh, released and arrested again. But what was beautiful is to see people I'd never met before. And I'd I'd never met people who had lived their whole lives uh, putting their hearts on the line for what they believed. Never met people so value drawn and so value expressed and so uncompromised uh, in their hearts. And again, I met many people, Native American elders. We had people come over from uh, the Soviet Union where they did their testing to kind of commiserate and show that um, any nuclear testing around the world is usually done on native land and there's all these repercussions of it. So they were transcendent and beautiful, uh, patient and large of heart and scope and very intimate to connect with. 
Um, but uh, two people that really changed my life are these two elder Quaker women. If you've heard me talk about this first time down to that nuclear test site, I, they camped next to us, so I got to know them, and I heard them singing songs at night by a campfire in the desert. I saw them getting arrested and how much love they showed the guards and how much the guards had fallen in love with them. They were irresistible not to fall in love with them. And I thought, I want my heart to be that beautiful. I just don't know how to take this heart that, that is, it's sometimes beautiful, but it's often judgy and petty and insecure and mimicking goodness, but in, in its own core, it knows that it's pissed off on some level. And it's like, I just feel it in them. So I saw paramis, I saw beautiful paramis expressed there. And so my activist self was awoken before my uh, meditator self. And I'm glad that came first because it's possible that you could take this tradition and think that it's meditator-centric. But actually most of the Buddhists in the world don't meditate even as intensively as we are. Most of them live lives, and most of what they do is service to their community, to their family, to themselves, um, trying to keep themselves healthy and happy and to attend to the needs of the people around them. That's most of the Dharma. Um, And of that retreat and doing this uh, mindfulness meditation is very helpful in the waking process, but most of the path is actually one more of service and ethical behavior. So sometimes, especially as we practice here, we get a little bit top heavy in the meditation and then we're kind of cast out on our own to do these uh, these deep practices of ethical living, generous living. Um, But that's probably more of what the path is for most people than doing an ever more fine-tuned analysis of your mental behavior. So I went and saw these paramis expressed at the Nevada nuclear test site. I saw people who had been uh, singing for peace and putting their hearts on the line for decades. Um, saw the unshakable beauty in their eyes, these old uh, Catholic nuns, um, uh, Quaker women, people from all, indigenous people from all over the world, uh, ordinary people. Um, but everybody had a, a sense of spirituality uh, whether they were religious or not. There was just something that glowed about the heart. And I knew that. It's like, now, now that I've seen it, I want it. And now that I know that it, it can grow, that's what I want for this heart, um, to be that unafflicted. And then it was 30 years ago, I went on my first meditation retreat and saw it. that's the work that transforms. I mean, life transforms. I went to my 30-year high school reunion and everybody was wiser. <laughs> In my mind, they were all 30 years older, so I was like, God, oh, I want to hang out with all these teenage punks. And I was like, well, they're going to be 30 years older. But when I met them, I was like, wow, everybody's actually wiser. Look at that. And they didn't seem much wiser than me. <laughs> and I had like, made a livelihood of being wise. And I was like, well, you all got, you all got wise. But I saw there was actually a, tr- there was a, there was a science and an art and a discipline of growing the heart. Um, that's what I saw in that first retreat. And so that fused for me, that uh, offer treat, it was about service and attending to myself, to my community, and stretching in terms of service. 
and becoming more and more understanding of what ethical behavior is like and looking what where harm is caused in direct ways and really complicated indirect ways, systemic ways, and studying that. And so being of service, being ethically attuned, um, that was most of my life. And then I would recharge myself with retreats. And then more and more I saw that the retreat was very important because there were roots down below that I couldn't get at in daily life. So I started doing longer retreats. Um, to get at some knots I couldn't get at in daily life. But then that had to be integrated at some point. And then it was very interesting to take the momentum of retreat back into the world and learn. So one little secret thing is this month-long retreat is just 28 days of your life, and your two-month retreat is just double that. That will come and go. And the only thing that you can carry with you is momentum, and clearer intention, a clearer compass heading of what your values are and how to live with those values at the forefront and less compromised. But this retreat will will, uh, disappear in your rear view mirror as all experiences do. So you'll have to take it with you where you go. And that's where the practice of these 10 paramis can be helpful in what we do on retreat, but it's also interesting guidelines for how to live in the world. And it's what the Buddha did over his trillions of lives. That's what we've been doing over our trillions of lives that have led us here. It's what a lot of uh, Burmese people reflect upon as they're living their lives. Are they developing paramis in general? And are they developing these 10 paramis as they live their lives? So either in a few days or in a month and a few days, uh, your practice will shift to worldly practice. And you can practice these on retreat. So I wanted to also underscore that because you don't have to wait to practice the paramis. There's a way that what you're doing here on the retreat really does develop paramis as well, these, uh, these strengths. So the first of these 10 paramis, um, these 10 beautiful qualities of heart, these 10 treasures of a liberated heart, that can be a practice to head in the right direction, but also hopefully as a taste of your freedom. As you go further in your path, hopefully you see these qualities growing in you. And if they're not, they, you might make a more intentional practice about them. There might be a way you're practicing that doesn't let these paramis grow. So that's also an interesting reflection. So the first of the paramis is dana parami. This uh, so I have the Pali word on one side and then two possible English uh, translations. And dhanaparami is uh, anything that cultivates more well-being or uh, supports well-being in yourself or in another. And so well-being can be cultivated by what you uh, offer, sort of tangible things that aid well-being, but also acts of service are dana. So um, your, the way that you hold the door for somebody here, the way that you do your, um, your uh, work meditations, um, that can be come from a Donna heart. It's more beautiful when it comes from a Donna heart versus a begrudging, I have to do this heart. It's like, no, I'm serving my community and I hope people benefit from the work I'm doing. Um, if that's motivating your heart, then you know the actions you're taking uh, taste beautiful while they're happening. 
So these paramis are a practice. They're a taste of your own beautiful heart. And they end up being more and more of the outcome of freedom. So on retreat, you can practice this dana. But mostly we're giving each other the space to be and the space to develop self-intimacy. So sharing space and creating community is dana, is dana for each other. None of us could do this alone. It's very hard to do one month retreat on your own. So that's a service. Your practice is a service to others here to have created this collective journey we're on together. Your practice is also dana for yourself because it leads to your own well-being. You get to cultivate your own well-being through your practice. So your future self that might have suffered is going to suffer less because you're cultivating more presence and wisdom. So the guy I am now is receiving the dana of the guy I was 30 years ago. And that hard work I did over the last 30 years has given me uh, the benefit. Whoever I am now is really receiving the benefit. So is my family. Um, it's taken a while, but I now uh, am more resource than reaction in my family. And when my family starts to go into its dysfunctional habits, I don't go down with them. And if one of my family members is listening to this talk, we might have to have a conversation about <laughs> what I'm trying to establish about myself. But, you know, let's have a cup of tea and let's talk about it. But I've noticed as my family goes through times where I think they're really good people, really great people, at times they get a little petty and at times we, we trigger each other. And I'm less a part of that triggering and I come back quicker. And I can actually hold people in compassion and in service uh, much more than I used to. And for that, I actually look forward to going to see my family. I want many more years of seeing them through this lens than some of my more contracted lenses where uh, old things happened and I have old you know, crunchy karma with people long ago, but they're not them either. You know, I'm holding people accountable for what they did 30 years ago and they're not them. So I've let go of a lot of my resentments in my family. I'm happy to um, be able to care for them and they receive the benefit of that. I'm now actually a wise person in my family. Again, if you're hearing this, <laughs> after the facts, you may want to you know, talk to me about that. <laughs> I notice I'm wiser and I notice that I'm much better counsel and I don't have as many internal things that I'm navigating uh, in order to be a resource in my family. Um, my family has gone through some hard times. Um, and certain years were very difficult and as I practice more and more, I'm less a part of the problem and I'm more a part of the resource of the family. So that's great. And in my larger community, it's the same. People aren't contending so much with my insecurities or my little ego maneuvers or you know, little ways that I get tripped up. And I still get tripped up, but less and less. And that hasn't made me more neutral. It hasn't made me more, I haven't been withdrawing from the world. I actually get to participate in the world and people get more human beauty out of me. Um, than they used to. And it's not as happenstance, it's a little bit more of a steady state that one of these beautiful qualities are coming. 
So there's dana, and in dana, you go from uh, a sense there's not enough to go around to the well-being comes from thinking uh, about my welfare and others' welfare, and then there's taking delight in that. So <clears throat> I've noticed over the last five years, if I look at the amount of joy I have, when, I'm, when I make my own joy happen, it's nice, I'm used to it, but the joy I have in somebody else's joy and participating in somebody else's welfare way outpaces, out, is, it's, it's what I really enjoy now. And I cannot do that by myself. I cannot actually get a lot of joy just for my own well-being. I get, it's okay. But participating in other people's well-being, um, it's what my heart really looks forward to. And that's dana. Dana can be a practice where you look at where you, you, you have to stretch a little bit to consider others. And then you begin to celebrate other people's welfare. And then it becomes really central to how your heart is oriented. It really delights and thinks more and more about other people's welfare. The next parami, sila, um, uh, begins as the practice of the five precepts that makes it very tangible, not harming, not stealing, not betraying or harming through sexuality, not lying or being harsh in speech, and then not clouding your mind and keeping it confused, um, helping your mind be bright and sober. Those five precepts is where we start. But then Sila expands uh, to ethical attunement and as our mindful intimacy develops, you can feel into how, how connected we all are. And that uh, words that I say that are unskillful, they both hurt the other person, my own heart actually gets hurt in that moment too, and then the amount of regret that follows and how much healing I have to do for my own heart and the person who is afflicted, and then rebuilding trust when uh, my mind goes uh, into unskillful directions. Um, so there's much more ethical sensitivity and it helps your mindfulness practice because you don't have as many regrets and as many things that you're trying to clean up after the fact. And then uh, becoming ethical at first might feel like a burden because your mind wants to do something and you say, no, don't do that, you have to be good. But after a while, it brings its own beautiful well-being, this beautiful ethical integrity where your heart enjoys its own uprightness, the fact that it, it can be challenged and it doesn't go into pettiness or greed or hatred. It doesn't go into a low-grade uh, response, but the very strength of your heart to stay ethical, uh, especially when it's being challenged. Um, there's a beautiful type of pride that comes around your own ethical attunement. And then it's a taste of a free heart. A free heart doesn't have the permission to go around being unethical. It's beautiful that a free heart is ethical. That's part of freedom, is uh, ethical understanding, the sense of where harm is, the, uh, the um, ability to predict where harm could happen, and your heart cares enough to be sensitive to that, or harm is happening, you're drawn towards it. How could we do this differently? You know, or someone was harmed, what, uh, 
what happened, what was confused, what we need to repair. That used to feel more like a burden because there's a lot of conflict and a lot of unpleasant Vedana in those realms. So I would try my best not to make mistakes. And if I did, I tried to avoid the repercussions of them or I'd feel guilty afterwards. One of the great things about knowing your Vedana, knowing your Vedana and having a heart that can deal with your Vedana, if you can breathe with your Vedana, you won't be as ethically challenged. But if you cannot breathe with your Vedana, most likely that's where you're going to be reactive. And around unpleasant Vedana, we tend to have the most intense alarm. So being able to uh, feel unpleasant circumstances and not need to be reactive around them allows you to understand what's happening and stay ethically attuned versus hitting a limit and then watching an old reaction take over. So as I've been able to grow my conscious relationship to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, I've noticed my ability to be ethical also include. So you have ethics over here, Vedana over here, but they actually blend together. And my ability to breathe with uh, my and your ability to breathe where there's discomfort allows for you to be ethically attuned. And you can see the ethical option, the relational option, the, the healthy option that respects all the beings involved um, before reactivity would take over. So uh, ethics grows with Vedana development. Same thing around pleasure, because we can get intoxicated around pleasure. So the second precept of stealing and the third precept of betraying people through sexual desire um, or sexual actions that betray or harm, that's often an intoxication around pleasant Vedana. So if pleasant Vedana keeps drawing you into an intoxication, you're likely to cause harm around that through the unconsciousness. But if you can be conscious around the pleasant Vedana, um, there's sharing, there's taking care of yourself. Uh, sexuality can be incredibly healthy, beautiful, and bonding. Um, it also has its full range of Vedana, but it becomes more a healthy expression of human relationship than one that uh, gets overwhelmed by the intensity of sexuality and then finds that it's very hard to be kind and patient um, and generous uh, in this powerful realm of sexuality. So there again, uh, Sila over here, Maiden over here, and as you're growing to be ethically attuned, you'll be drawn into being more mindful of this Vedana quality because it's where the reactivity comes from. As you go into Vedana, you'll see that until you can breathe with it, the way the mind's reacting, uh, might not be as ethically attuned. It might not be relationally sensitive. It might not be relationally wise. There are these two guidelines to sila, these two uh, aspects of the mind um, that support sila. One is called hiri and the other is otapa. These are two Pali words. And sometimes I remember which is which, because they're, but because they're often taught together, then I forget which is which. So there are these two qualities. <laughs> I don't have the, mar the parami of exacting mem memory. 
But one is an attunement to your own values. So maybe I'll find out which is which. Maybe somebody knows. <laughs> I could ask, I could crowdsource. Maybe one of, the, one of you knows. But Hiri or Otapa <laughs> is as you get in touch with your own heart, um, it begins to have its own compass heading. And it doesn't matter what other people would do. It's not what you would do. And so having your own sense of inner dignity guides you. The other <clears throat> is having an appreciation for what it, for the collective field. So even if it's okay by your judgment, you know that it's, it won't go well collectively. And that, that takes an attunement to what is the shared field? What are the shared values of this particular community? So for example, one of the things I love about going back east is the sense of humor is much better in that, or my type of humor. I like a little edge. I like just a little, I don't know, a little lemon juice in the cut. It, it just, it, it is so funny. So I went to this uh, ashram in Virginia, and it was just close enough that New Yorkers would come down for a weekend. And on, during the weekday, you get the, the ashram people, and they're all so sensitive and so careful not to offend and so conscious with what they were saying. But there'd be hard truths that would be hard to get to because you might hurt somebody's feelings. And so there'd be this sort of conflict-avoiding sensitivity as we're all getting more sensitive. And a bunch of New Yorkers would come in, <laughs> and they just had uh, no edit on the, the clean slice. And it's like the, the bullshit and the spiritual um, uh, avoidance um, would just be cut through. And I was like, ah, that's so funny, the way you just like nailed it. And there's an appreciation of that type of... Mm. So <clears throat> even though I don't mind a good... You know, it has to be good, right on the edge sense of humor. I like it when it's like a little prick, but not too much more than that, because then I get defensive. <laughs> but someone who has that type of biting sense of humor, I was like, ah, I know that sense of humor. So I have a personal value around that. I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, but sometimes there's a little poke. But sometimes I'm in a community where that's not appreciated. It doesn't bring up trust. People are actually working on sensitivity. And it's actually healthy sensitivity. So even though it doesn't go against my personal values, I see the collective attunement that's being carefully cultivated. And it's not an unhealthy version of conflict avoidance. It's actually creating, intentionally creating a really safe field. And those little zinging jokes um, undermine that. So I have to be careful about that. So, hiri, otapa. Uh, one is a, a personal guidance around your own developing sense of um, ethical attunement. And the other is a, a, a collective sense of what are, what are our values and what are we cultivating here. And they guide the development of sila. <clears throat> when, I, uh, when I left, my practice as a monk, I, w I had been meditating for a while so I put on robes and I sat and I walked and I sat and I walked and I was like, eh, shaved head, robes, the breath, you know. It wasn't that different, but I started learning all these rules of being a monk and I was like, that's really complicated. 
And very few of the rules are necessary when you're sitting and walking. But as soon as you leave the monastery or open your mouth, there are all these guidelines that, get, that keep you out of trouble. And so what felt burdensome as a meditator suddenly became uh, incredibly um, sensitive to the way that relationships fall apart and the way that people feel undermined in their trust. And that was my role as a monastic. So it was nice to go to the go back to sitting and walking because there wasn't a lot of ethical dimension to how I was breathing or feeling my feet. But that wasn't my only job as being a monastic. Um, a big part of it is heightening your ethical sensitivity. And then noticing how your mind struggles over that. So each of the 227 precepts brings you to a place where um, trouble was caused, and so they had a guideline on it. Um, so that's the whole thing about, uh, of the Pali Canon, one third of it is how to live harmoniously as a monastic. And then another third is how, the, how to awaken the mind. And the other third is this complex psychology, the Abhidhamma. But a big portion of it is about uh, becoming more ethically attuned. And we come into these, uh, these other um, paramis, and each one of them is also a beauty and a sort of a boundless capacity. You won't find an upper limit of them. So uh, earlier in the retreat, Yang talked about renunciation, nekama. And what might first feel like a practice, because the mind has a lot of habits of clinging for its security, so you have to challenge the mind about these clingings to views or property or senses of self. You begin to feel that it's the release of all this clinging that generates awakening well-being versus um, the struggling conditioning well-being. And so as your mind becomes more in its flow state and doesn't uh, add a lot of affliction, it's this ability not to cling, not to try to establish. When uh, water's flowing in a river, it just flows. You put a rock in the middle and it causes all sorts of turbulence. So anywhere your mind is looking for security by gripping, to property or identities or your political views. Um, anywhere the mind is trying to establish itself and become unflexible, non-adaptive, uh, that's usually where the turbulence uh, start. And the harder and larger that clinging, the more turbulence in the flow. So the kama actually serves your well-being. And Yang talked beautifully about that in all the ways that he had explored uh, the renunciation and the mind that can release. It's not to be world rejecting or world negating, it's just a mind that, that doesn't grip. Um, so a lot of what we're practicing here is how to be wakeful while the mind flows through many experiences and learn that no, not one of them could be clung to. And so more and more you're not clinging and there's a different type of well-being that comes out of that versus trying to establish certain experiences that are more rewarding. The fourth parami of wisdom, this growing sense of perspective, this growing sense of understanding. Um, there are many layers where wisdom and understanding can happen. 
So there's meditative wisdom that grows on retreat. There's collective community wisdom, what it's like to be in a, a more active relational field. What is the wisdom around speech? So you can be practicing honesty and then wisdom grows around honesty that not all honesty is useful. So what you were developing in terms of honesty, you start to see the negative impact. And it's like, yeah, cultivating um, a healthy relational field is not just about saying everything that's true. There has to be a kindness in it. There has to be perspective. Is what I'm saying beneficial? Is what I'm saying true? So that one realm has its own field of wisdom uh, around wise speech. What is wise collective living? How do you share power and decision-making in your community? And is that done consciously, intentionally? Coming on retreat, what's a sort of an inner coaching you have? Or is it just wordless intuition around uh, not gripping, where the mind might go for an old habit? Or being kind to to yourself and knowing the wisdom around that? Or being patient when the mind feels stuck? So there are many ways that wisdom grows and it grows in many, um, uh, how was that English word? Many conditions, circumstances, that's not quite it. But wisdom grows and sometimes it's really tangible, expressible wisdom and the mind produces like, this is helpful, this is not helpful. But sometimes it's just, it's a wordless intuition that that ends up guiding the heart. And and the heart gets in less trouble as it understands in this circumstance, uh, previous experiences have taught me not to take this old habit. So I have wisdom around pressing send on an email that I am sure I deserve to send because it is so righteous. And it's like, this is a masterpiece of righteousness and it's on the receiver to deal with the impact because I have so clearly laid out how reality works. And now it's on you to deal with the truth. I have wisdom that says, do not press send on that email. And I was like, why? It makes so much sense. And I think every other time you did that, the next day you're like, that was not right. But in the moment, it feels so right. So <laughs> wisdom has begun to emerge on the, um, the soapbox email sending. There's actually a, um, there's a piece of software you can get that you send your email and it gives you 24 hours before it actually sends it. <laughs> so you get the feeling of having sent it. Ah, take that world. And then you get to kind of like, ooh, wow, you know, an hour later. <laughs> and it is funny, the next day it's like, wow, look at that phrase that is meant to gouge into somebody. It's like the, the thickness of the righteousness. So still a work in progress on that. The next beautiful quality is virya, and virya, uh, two words here, courage or energy. And there can be the energy to engage, um, 
or the courage and the understanding uh, that not just flying off the handle. Sometimes I need as much courage not to engage, which actually gets closer to the other part of me, the next one, patience and endurance. But virya <clears throat> tends to take some other quality and make it its more bold expression. So virya can back up loving kindness so that it becomes courageously expressed. Or virya can back up truth-telling so that it's courageously expressed. Virya by itself tends to enhance another quality, uh, another beautiful quality. So one silly image my mind likes is that if you took a surgical glove and you wrote all the paramis on each of the fingers and you blew into it as those fingers expanded, that's virya making all the other ones expand. And you keep on blowing it till the fingers disappear and that's where all the paramis are expressed in one moment. It's because virya has made them all so powerful that they all arise in a particular moment. Um, it's very expansive. And it's very empowering to actually have a heart that's willing to take that size, take that size of its stance and be uh, filled to that degree by whatever you're expressing. It's not a half measure. It's not a cautious measure. You're willing to really uh, take whatever is happening for you, know it through wisdom and kindness, and then let it take its full size through virya. Kanti, this next one, uh, many, many, uh, several translations, but patience or endurance. There are some challenges that overwhelm us in the moment or they overwhelm us by their duration. And a mind that buckles will buckle into old survival mechanisms. And sometimes before you can actually have perspective, you have to sustain yourself in relationship to a challenge before you can see what's going on in that challenge. So sometimes it takes hours, sometimes it takes days, sometimes weeks, months, to be in a challenge, to understand it, so you can actually respond skillfully. So what supports you in the duration of, of a challenge or in a particular spike of a challenge? And there actually is a heart quality, a kanti. My family was going through a hard time <clears throat> when uh, one of my nieces was going through um, kind of a descent into heroin addiction. And it was incredibly challenging because uh, the pain in the heart of seeing her afflicted, seeing her, her she, it happened when she turned 18 and all of a sudden we lost any type of influence over her. And then my heart just had to stand courageously on this journey and it kept saying, I can't, I can't. And by standing in that and feeling how painful it was, I had to find what was, what was it that I couldn't do. And it was, a, it was an intense pain to see her suffering and then watch my sister suffer and my mother suffer and watch uh, her siblings suffer and then feel this despair come over us. Um, but <clears throat> the I can't was a resistance to reality, but I couldn't find the resistance because it was so painful. So I had to endure the pain of what was happening until I could find in my own heart the source of, I can't do this. 
The same thing happened with my chronic fatigue. Every now and then, it's really painful. I can't do the responsibilities of the day. It doesn't make sense how I can deal. And then the, the pain gets strong and it still get waves like this. Uh, and it's Conti that holds me steady in the face of that challenge, both in a particular spike of chronic fatigue, pain, or the fact that the last 20 years has been uh, saturated with a lot of difficulty, not only difficulty, but a lot of it. And it's, it's been this parmi of uh, withstanding it, of enduring it, of being patient with it, so that I can find again, where is the seed of this resistance? And often the I can't is some type of clinging, protective clinging that is buckling under the strain of the challenge, but I can't find it yet. So as I have a strength to endure difficulty, it actually supports my ability to explore the difficulty mindfully and then find what is the actual resistance that I can soften so I can actually reintroduce intimacy and adaptability versus just getting rigid and then kind of collapsing under the weight of a challenge. I want to honor your bodies that we've been here for an hour. We have four more, so maybe the horse might gallop a little bit. <laughs> they deserve uh, their own time. Uh, each of these paramis, they're quite beautiful. Satcha is um, a f- an orientation, a commitment to the truth and to truth seeing over your preferences of how you want the world to be and drawing towards truth and towards honesty. Again, the wise relationship to honesty, especially um, in how much you're taking on at once or how much you're trying to communicate. But still, the honesty, preferring the honesty, because that frees, that heals. Wise honesty gets you in touch with the truth, gets you in touch with reality, and reality you can work with, but being lost in fantasy is not helpful. I mean, a heart that's willing, drawn to, ennobled by its relationship to truth to reality. Metta, kindness, as a Brahma Vihara, is a boundless state. Getting a sense that you're an ally with all beings, because all beings have paramis, all beings have potential, all beings are seeking their happiness. We're on par with all beings in that search. We're, we share that. And so, what is it like to be on? team universe, (laughs) where there isn't somebody off team, there isn't an opponent, there isn't an opposition, there's only uh, beings that get confused, um, as we all do, and beings that are trying to wake up, and being an ally to waking up for yourself, for others, and then universally, offering universal friendship, universal respect, universal benevolence, more and more being on the side of all life. When we were monks, we had these huge rain barrels. That's where the mosquitoes would plant um, their uh, larvae. And so you go for water, you see the, the, the larvae, and you actually had to scoop it out. They had a particular net by each of the water tanks where you'd have to scoop out the larvae. But where would you put them? You had to put them in other water. So you had to scoop up the uh, mosquito larvae and then find some place else for them to live. So we actually had a water barrel for the mosquito larvae where you could put them so you could have drinking water so you wouldn't accidentally kill them. 
And I was like, really? <laughs> I mean, I got so many things to do. I got to protect the mosquito larva, but it actually put me on. It, it made mosquitoes and their children a part of my role of caring for them. And mosquitoes were low on my list. They were, they were opponents to well-being. So you're supposed to care for them. And after a while, you watch your own mind not caring for them. And that's a contracted mind. If mosquitoes, if you're not on team mosquito, that's a place your mind is contracted. Even the Dalai Lama is working on that. He said, I shoo a mosquito away twice, and on the third time, slap. I gave it two shots. <laughs> so even the great uh, Dalai Lama is working on that. Aditana. <clears throat> a mind that is stabilized by its vows, by its convictions, by its ability to be determined, uh, an inner dignity, an inner poise, um, in the face of a challenge, uh, standing in the wind, standing in the wave, standing in the challenge, and being resolute. And so people practice aditanas. You say, my mind's got to wiggle here. My mind seems to collapse here. I'm going to take on aditana. Anitana of not lying, of not uh, avoiding hard com- conversations, of sitting still, and aditana of coming on a month-long retreat. That took resolution. That took standing in your values to come here. The beautiful, ennobling quality of heart and mind, especially if done with kindness, with perspective, so it's not just ardency for its own sake, which could make the mind hard. Many of you have used aditana to get through your hard sits, hard afternoons, through your purifications, through the, the storms and the hindrances. You've had to have resolve to face your own doubts, to face your own pain. And then finally, upeka, um, this balanced heart, the heart of non-reaction, non-reactivity. It's supported by wisdom, it's supported by patience but a heart that doesn't fly into reactivity, a heart that is stabilized, usually from its own wise perspective, that it knows that stability in the face of a challenge, non-reactivity, is where your well-being lies versus being in old habits of reactivity. So growing the sense of balance, the sense of poise, the sense of not chasing after what has been good, resisting what has been hard, being more even through the flow of it, that it all, there's value in all moments. So with the support of that condition, a mind that is not reactive, a mind that's stable in its intimacy, no matter what arises. This beautiful quality of Upekka, it becomes a Brahmavihara along like Metta. It's universally helpful. So here are these 10 paramis. Um, you don't have to practice all 10 of them at once. You can see if any particular ones stand out, if they would strengthen your practice, both on retreat or in life. Um, we're all working on them. They all develop as we awaken. Um, as they ripen, they are what a free mind looks like. A free mind is usually just a play of all these beauties as they pass through. Um, not a, always an intense 11, But appropriately, in the circumstances you find yourself, there's patience, there's love, there's courage, um, there's truthfulness, there's generosity, ethical attunement. So 
Oh, I wanted to put that out there along with uh, Sally's talk that the third noble truth is not just that suffering goes or that we don't have as many arrows that we're afflicted by, but there are also beauties that visit us more and more and our heart becomes more of a home for beauty and more of a sanctuary made up of these beautiful qualities as both a refuge for yourself and also these qualities are where we end up serving the world. And any one of these is a quality to serve yourself and the world with, let alone several of them or the whole treasure chest of all 10. Let us sit for a little bit. And invite us back towards simplicity. Taking in the flow of sounds, flow of body sensations. And may you also be mindful of your beautiful qualities as they pass through and not just ever more aware of afflictions or contractions, but do celebrate these treasures when they pass through the heart. They have the taste of freedom and their guidance towards deeper freedom. Now give your body a rest. Stand, walk, stretch. Come back for a last sit and some chanting together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.